right now there is this constant focus on obesity and let's train to lose weight. Let's train to lose body fat. Let's, it's all about obesogenic and it's all about this obesity focus. Well, we've been trying that for decades and quite frankly, numbers of, of obesity have increased. They, they haven't decreased and we're not seeing proper movement, no pun intended in the right direction. But the reality is if you believe that obesity is at the root cause and is the root of the problem, you are going to try to solve the problem of obesity. I'm here to tell you that that's actually the wrong problem you are trying to solve. We do not have a body fat problem. Body fat is symptomology of impaired skeletal muscle. So in fact, we have a skeletal muscle problem. And welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. This episode is a replay of a monthly webinar I hosted on behalf of CrossFit Health with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on skeletal muscle. Dr. Lyon has been on the podcast previously, but here we spend more time discussing exactly why skeletal muscle is so important for our health and answer some of the audience's questions. You can join us live for next month's webinar on January 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern, which will be featuring Dr. George Slavich, director of the UCLA Stress Lab, as he talks about the implications of stress on our health and how to build resilience against all types of life stresses. Keep an eye out in the CrossFit email of the day and on CrossFit.com for registration details. Before we dive into this episode, I do want to make it clear that this podcast is for general information only and does not provide medical advice. I recommend that you seek assistance from your personal physician for any health conditions or concerns. With that, let's get to the episode. All right, I think we're going to dive in. So it's great to see everybody joining us today. This is our third CrossFit Health webinar in this series. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and I'm really excited to introduce her to all of you here in a moment. Uh, before we get started, just a couple of quick housekeeping things. So um, if you have, as you're listening, if you have questions that you want to ask, just make sure you write them in the Q&A box. And then towards the end of the webinar, I'll be asking those to Dr. Lyon. So feel free to write them in at any time. Um, also, just before we get started, a quick disclaimer. Um, this, I think, goes without saying, but just to make it clear, CrossFit is not offering any medical advice. We're not providing any medical recommendations. Um, during this webinar. So with that, I'm excited to introduce Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. So she has been an inspiration to me for many years. I first heard her speak at a conference and I'm excited to have her share her knowledge with all of you here. She is a Washington University fellowship trained physician in nutritional science and geriatrics. She's board certified in family medicine and osteopathic manipulation. So go family medicine. <laughs> um, she also completed her undergrad degree in human nutrition, vitamin and mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois. And she has founded the Institute for Muscle Centric Medicine, which we will dig into here in this webinar. She well, services leaders, innovators, mavericks, and executives in their prospective fields. And in addition, Dr. Lyon works closely with the special operations military, and she has a private practice that services patients worldwide. So thanks so much for joining us today. Ah, you bet. And listen, disclaimer, there might be screaming kids coming in. We are <laughs> in uh, San Diego this month. So just forewarning everybody. Multiple disclaimers. We're going to have a lot of fun though. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, I thought we could just start off with a bit of your personal experience. Um, I know you are no stranger to building muscle yourself. So maybe you can start with just your personal experience with fitness, and then we'll get into how that led you into this path in medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so funny talking to a CrossFit community because I did try CrossFit. Can't say I'm very good at it, but I, I definitely tried it. So from a very early age, I was pretty athletic. Um, you know, I played soccer, track, dance, that kind of a thing. And when I was 17, I graduated high school early and I moved in with my godmother, who actually, if you're familiar with the functional medicine space, her name is Dr. Elizabeth Lipsky. So that's actually, I know you guys had Roundtree on last month. That's kind of the same crew in the same generation of functional medicine practitioners. So Dr. Lipsky is my godmother. I moved in with her and then I started really getting into nutrition and I worked for room and board. And at the same time, I got very into fitness and fitness as a lifestyle. And um, yeah, that was all before college. Fast forward to college, was in my dorm and I watched, do you remember Fitness America? You, you probably don't remember that, but there was Fitness America and then there was these galaxy obstacle courses. Okay. And I just became obsessed with them. Like I could do that. So that's actually, you know, where I started in terms of really being so hyper-focused on muscle came from more of a physique, um, figure type of perspective rather than performance. And then of course I landed in a lab of Dr. Donald Lehman. And it was funny. He was over at Rutgers giving an inaugural speech. And I'm like, Don, how come I was never on a paper as an undergrad? And he said to me, I have never put an undergrad on a paper in 30 years. <laughs> so there was that. And so my point of saying that is that I actually ended up in Dr. Donald Lehman's lab. And for those people who are interested in research and muscle health and protein metabolism, he is one of the world leading experts. And that has been a 20 year mentorship. Um, but so between living with Elizabeth Lipsky and working with Dr. Donald Lehman, my path in terms of fitness was totally forged. That's amazing. And it's amazing to see how, how it comes together, like some of those personal interests and passions, and then bringing that together with the research that you were doing and then your yeah. path in medicine. So let's dive in and talk about muscle. So I think a lot of people first think about muscle as this organ that's really important for functionality. It allows us to move through life and do the things that we want to do, but you talk about how muscle is so much more than that. And maybe the yeah. most important organs so It is, and you would agree, is. right? So let's, before we even talk about that, let's talk about what our current narrative situation is. Mm -hmm. So right now there is this constant focus on obesity and let's train to lose weight. Let's train to lose body fat. Let's, it's all about obesogenic and it's all about this obesity focus. Well, we've been trying that for decades and quite frankly, numbers of, of obesity have increased. They, they haven't decreased and we're not seeing proper movement, no pun intended in the right direction. But the reality is if you believe that obesity is at the root cause and is the root of the problem, you are going to try to solve the problem of obesity. I'm here to tell you that that's actually the wrong problem you are trying to solve. We do not have a body fat problem body fat is symptomology of impaired skeletal muscle. So in fact, we have a skeletal muscle problem. Obesity starts in skeletal muscle first. Insulin resistance starts in skeletal muscle first. 
So rather than trying to correct for an obesity problem, we actually have to correct for a skeletal muscle problem. Okay. So now we are all on the same page that we have been focusing on the wrong tissue. And that as a society, we are not over fat. We're actually under muscled, which is essentially true. What's so interesting is this is actually in the literature. Insulin resistance beginning in skeletal muscle is actually in the literature. But for some reason, we are so fat phobic and fat focused because that's probably what causes the most emotional pain for people. That's probably the thing that you know, creates internal discomfort. And as a society, we are all about like, let's fix it. Um, so if you shift the perspective to skeletal muscle and you understand that if you believe in root cause medicine, you have to address skeletal muscle first. And skeletal muscle takes time and attention, especially as we age, it takes proper fueling. It takes just a little bit of understanding in terms of training, but then also dietary nutrition, because the way in which the body's signaling mechanisms go down. So essentially, as we age, the body becomes less efficient at using protein and really less efficient at building muscle. Of course, you know, I am presenting this in a very black and white state. That's not actually how it exists. But for sake of, you know, for argument's sake, it makes the most sense to do it that way. And I love the way that you frame that because I think, you know, similar to when we talk about food, it, you know, if we can talk about what are the nutritious foods to eat versus what are the foods that are bad for you, putting it in a positive light, like rather than talking about, we need to get rid of fat. Let's talk about how do we make our muscle really healthy. And then usually the fat is going to start to disappear as a consequence of that when we address the root cause. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting when I think about muscle health, I think about, like you said, activities of daily living, mobility, the ability to perform proper functions. That is part of muscle health. What is underrepresented is skeletal muscle actually in and of itself is an organ system. And we don't think about skeletal muscle as this endocrine organ. It is an endocrine organ like the thyroid is an organ. When skeletal muscle contracts, it actually secretes myokines. So these are peptides, compounds that come from contracting skeletal muscle. And there's more than 600. There is a ton of different myokines. These myokines travel throughout the body and create a crosstalk. They talk to the immune system. They talk to the bone. They talk to the brain. And in fact, some research is coming out that it actually helps with nutrient partitioning. What does that mean? That means that when we think about calories in and calories out, which yes, that is true. That is important. We have to think about what pushes calories out and you think about exercise, there's also another layer to that. And obviously there's multiple layers, but another layer is myokines actually can affect glucose regulation. It affects triglycerides. It, it has these multiple other effects. So skeletal muscle, understanding that skeletal muscle is an organ is very important. And I actually believe it's the medicine of the future. And I'm going to throw something else out there. When we look at endpoints, when you go to the doctor and you look at endpoints, we are measuring endpoints like glucose, like insulin, like triglycerides, like inflammatory markers. We are not measuring myokines. We are not measuring endpoints to show, hey, is my skeletal muscle healthy? Is this exercise that I'm doing after exercise, am I producing the right myokines? What are the you know, what are the components in my blood that I'm producing to actually prove that exercise prescription is helpful, that I am doing enough work. So this is something, this is a project that I'm working on now. 
That is very exciting. I can't Which wait. I was talking to. Yeah. Um, so it's Karen, not yeah. Karen. Karen, hi. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is something that I was talking about in, in our conversation that I'm going to be working on bringing to the public in terms of what are other markers that we can measure as opposed to just these obesogenic markers. And I, I think that this is a really important conversation when you think about muscle health is you have to understand that the framework for which we are looking at it is a broken framework. That's fascinating. I can't wait to see what we're able to learn and what we're able to measure um, as we, as we look into that further. So when we talk about really optimizing muscle health, what are the different ingredients that go into that? How do we think about it? Perfect for a CrossFit community. Obviously we think of resistance training. Obviously we think about aerobic type training, or we think about high intensity interval training. You think about mitochondrial biogenesis. You also think about keeping skeletal muscle healthy. And what I mean by skeletal muscle healthy, I mean, we've all seen a marbled steak. And what happens is as we age, the tissue becomes less efficient at utilizing dietary protein. Dietary protein is something that I really want. If you take away one thing from this conversation, I ideally want you to take away two things. <laughs> I want you to take away the concept that skeletal muscle is an organ system that produces myokines and that it is underrepresented. And this is the goal moving forward. This is the real kind of medicine we need to approach life with. The second, you know, the second component to this is I want you to understand, I want you to leave here having a mastery of the understanding of dietary protein and its role in health and wellness. Because while it is uh, many amino acids, it doesn't mean that the scientific evidence is not out there, even though there's a lot of confusion about plant protein, animal protein, it is, there's a huge division that we're seeing now more so than ever before. Julie, when you started 10 years ago, people were not, it was not like this. It's not, it's gotten extreme, like many things in our world. <laughs> right. So it's very weird, but I do, when we think about muscle health, you must believe I don't want to say the word believe you must appreciate the role of high quality protein. And I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> yes. I would love to dig into that more because I think that's one of the things that for me, it was extremely eye-opening. Even when I started paying more attention to my nutrition and tracking how much protein I was eating, I thought I was eating a lot, but really wasn't still wasn't eating enough. So when we're talking about getting enough um, dietary protein to support our muscle health. What are we looking for? And what's the, what's the research behind that? So it's, it's interesting. The research would say you would be great at 1.6 grams per kilogram. You it could be anywhere from 1.2 to 1.8 grams per kilogram. That's really where the evidence would, you know, lie. I actually recommend one gram per pound ideal body weight. And why? Because it can be supported. So that actually can be supported by science. You could argue for it. You know, there isn't a upper limit of safety that we've ever seen for dietary protein. I think, you know, they, the RDA, when you think about the RDA, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram, that's the minimum to protect against disease. So right now you're seeing influencers come out and perhaps talk about how your the RDA is too much and you should be eating 0.3 grams per kilogram of protein. That's actually inaccurate. Is if you believe that the recommended dietary allowance is the minimum amount of protein to protect against disease and deficiency, really. Mm -hmm. And so is it? Yes, it's absolutely the bare minimum. Um, I do think that we are going to see that 
you know, in aging, the ProDage study has come out where we know that individuals need more protein. We know that meal distribution is important. And what meal distribution is, is that's the protein feeding per meal. Um, you know, I recommend one gram per pound ideal body weight. And that is on the higher end of protein. But the reason is, is you still have to get your calories from somewhere. Uh, in the CrossFit community, you, you guys are burning a lot of energy. So would it, you know, and even the operators that I take care of, would a high protein, low carbohydrate style diet work for them? Not necessarily, not always, depending on the amount of training that they're doing, but someone could easily do well on one gram per pound, ideal body weight. Um, so that, that's where I would start. And you can titrate up or down from that actually. So what would you recommend for someone who's maybe 30 to 50 years old is doing five CrossFit workouts per week in an affiliate? Um, otherwise is maybe mostly sedentary in their, in their work throughout the rest yeah. of the day. What would be a good starting place for someone like that? Well, first let's decide. So 30 at age 30 versus at age 50, I believe is different. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a really good point. As we age, something happens called to the body called anabolic resistance which means the body becomes less efficient at utilizing dietary protein. And you'll see that over a period of time, skeletal muscle becomes more insulin resistant. It becomes more difficult to actually put on muscle. Of course, this isn't to say that everyone is going to have a difficult time putting on muscle, especially in your thirties. But, you know, as you age, as you become more mature, hormones change, growth hormones change, testosterone changes, estrogen, progesterone, these hormone changes that happen do and can affect your ability to recover, sleep, muscle growth. So when do you think about what an implementable plan would be? I would recommend if you are 30, you can actually get away with a little bit of a lower protein intake, but getting a minimum of 30 grams of protein is very, very, very helpful. Before we do it by age, we should think about it by goal. So one of the things, the other component of muscle health that we didn't talk about other than you know activities of daily living is metabolic health. Muscle equals metabolic health. If you can correct for protein and your diet is protein forward, you can get subsequent metabolic correction. What does that mean? You can lower blood pressure, you can lower triglycerides, you can improve insulin, you can improve blood glucose, and you could easily do that if you had a minimum of 30 grams of protein three times a day. I talk about that a lot, and it's not because the three meals a day is a magic number, and actually there's different protocols that I use, but this is something that is very easy for metabolic correction, and, and also it can improve body composition. And I think at the end of the day, you know, you do want to stimulate skeletal muscle. Yes, you do it through exercise, but we also know that muscle growth requires calories. It requires protein and it requires training. So 30 to 50 grams of protein would be ideal per meal. So figure out how much you want, you know, how much protein you're going to get in. If you are older and say, you know, you really struggle 
to get in a higher amount of protein, then you could go a little bit above 50 grams, no problem. And let's say you get two big meals at 50 plus grams and a smaller midday meal, I would be perfectly happy with that because you do need to begin to think about how do you protect your skeletal muscle? If you eat the way that you did in your twenties, that doesn't translate well with the changing milieu, that changing hormonal milieu of the body, because what happens is with you know, hormones that decrease with these efficiencies of these mechanisms in the body, this stimulation of mTOR, which is kind of at the, you know, is a complex, which then creates not by itself, but then pushes towards muscle protein synthesis. You do have to stimulate that. And the way that you stimulate that is through an amino acid called leucine Mm -hmm. and leucine goes back to our conversation about high quality proteins high quality animal-based proteins or whey proteins have high amounts of leucine. And that at the very heart is extraordinarily important for muscle growth and health. Love that. And that's, I think a great rule of thumb to think about just making sure you're getting enough at each meal, yeah. minimum 30 grams per meal, three times per day. And it's easy, right? So the protein metabolism is incredibly complex. You're dealing with 20 amino acids. It's complex, right? You're dealing with leucine, isoleucine, valine, tryptophan, phenylalanine. You know, you're dealing with nine essential amino acids. Each of those amino acids have secondary, um, you know, secondary roles. For example, threonine for gut health, for mucin production. So there's all these different things that happen. But on a fundamental level, if you understand, if you can simplify it down, which everybody can by understanding that high quality proteins, which are typically animal-based proteins or a whey-based protein, if you meet the needs of muscle first, then everything else flows, then you meet the needs of everything else. Love that. And you've mentioned high quality animal-based proteins a couple of times. So I want to continue with that while we're on the topic. Um, If you are working with someone who is a vegetarian or vegan, how do you approach um, getting enough protein or building muscle with those people? Those people you use supplementation, right? And that is uh, essential amino acids, branch chain amino acids, creatine. You have to think about the other nutrients, the food matrix within animal-based products, you know, so Number one, you think about supplementing with amino acids. For vegan or vegetarian, you have to supplement with a meal. You don't want to give amino acids pulsatile throughout the day. They should be taken together at a meal. So if it's three meals a day or four meals a day, that's when you want to add the amino acids because really for muscle health, you need all the amino acids. It's not just the branch chain and the branch chains, and it's not just the nine essential amino acids. You need all of them to make it happen. I love it. Um, and then this topic, like you said, it's obviously contra- gotten very controversial and extremely brutal. It wasn't like that. <laughs> um, but there is, you know, the argument, there's a strong argument out there against animal protein with concerns that it could be contributing to cancer. So how oh, do you- okay, okay. Let's talk about this. Number one, Julie, what kind of cancer? Colon cancer, all kinds of cancer. <laughs> lung cancer is not metabolic. So lung cancer is correlated to smoking. Dietary protein and lung cancer have nothing to do with each other. Do you see? So I actually, I actually was writing a whole review on this. I should pull this up. So when we talk about cancer, I think this is a really important topic. What kind of cancer are we talking about? Are we talking about lung, can- lung cancer, which by the way, survival rates have not improved in the last 60 years and beef and animal protein is down. Okay, number one. 
Number two, if we are talking about ovarian, if we are talking about breast, prostate, colon cancer, we there is a direct link, a, a risk factor, a known risk factor is obesity. Okay, now, okay, so now we've talked about not only that, okay, just not only that, cancer is a disease of the genome, a disease of the genome. Dietary protein is the way in which dietary protein works is it stimulates a complex called mTOR. mTOR is a growth promoter in every single tissue that the body has maintained a very unique ability to have, right? It is a growth promoter. We need it. It is normal to function. You exercise, you stimulate mTOR. You eat, you stimulate mTOR. It's in, it is in all different, it's in every single cell. In skeletal muscle, mTOR is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids. So do you upregulate the mTOR pathway when you eat protein in skeletal muscle? Totally. Do you upregulate the mTOR pathway when you eat carbohydrates and extra calories? Yes. So that being said, the idea that you push and upregulate a pathway is one thing and actually causing a genetic and or gene alteration is a totally different conversation. Do you see? Not only that, if you believe in some science, you believe in risk ratios, right? So a risk ratio is, you know, if you, if you do this thing, you get this result. So a risk ratio, and this is in the literature, you know, and this is largely epidemiology and, you know, population type data, which is not great because there's confounding variables, but it is well established that a risk ratio below two is insignificant. Okay. This is just standard a risk ratio above two is. So cancer and smoking is 12. Eating protein or even red meat and cancer is 1.1 to 1.3. So the real question is, what is the real driver behind this conversation of protein and cancer? What, What is the driver? Cancer needs something to go wrong in the genome. It needs an initiation factor, right? There has to be some initiation of the downstream effect. And then there's some promotion that happens. But to say that that thing, that eating dietary protein, because dietary protein pushes mTOR in skeletal muscle, right? Because we said that mTOR is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids in skeletal muscle, causes protein or causes cancer is, makes absolutely no sense when we know that mTOR is in the pancreas and the liver and in other places where actually, if you really believed that M, that stimulating mTOR causes cancer, you would really cut back on your carbohydrates and you would really cut back on extra calories. So this just goes to show um, that this is all narrative. It's all narrative, right? So it's interesting. It's really interesting. And thank you for taking us through that because it's true. I think yeah. that so much of what you hear about this is all narrative or it is really oh, yeah. on these ep- epidemiological studies, which have limitations. And so talking through the mechanism of it, I think is also really important. So thank you. And, and I just think that we have to understand is people say protein and cancer. What kind of cancer are we talking about? Lung cancer, which hasn't trained, changed in the last 60 years. 
colon, uh, breast and uterine cancer, prostate cancer, which are all linked to obesity, you know, mm-hmm. but it just, so this is something where people have to understand, you know, that this is, you know, that cancer is a disease of the genome and it needs a mutation in that genome. Dietary protein doesn't cause a mutation. Right. Right. Like right? that makes sense. But now being overweight and pushing and pushing oncogenic factors can create a problem. Mm-hmm. So sure. lots of confounding factors. Um, I'm going to start taking some audience questions soon. So if you all that are listening have questions that you want to ask, make sure you type them in the Q and a box and we will run through all of those or as many as we can get through. Um, you want me to take a look at some of these questions or we're just starting, they're just starting to flow in okay. on this time we start to get them flowing in. But um, I would, I did want to ask you, we talked a lot about protein intake and nutrition and how to support optimal yeah. there. What do we know about optimal exercise and recovery for promoting muscle health? I think that that's a great question. Um, you know, I don't know if I know that answer. I think that, you know, some of the exercise physiologists would probably be much better suited to answer that. Cause I, I can tell you what I see in my clinical practice and I can tell you some of the things that I see with my extreme athletes and my extreme operators, like the seals is there's this thing that happens that they get really, really fit. And then there's this, there's this level of fitness where it actually doesn't necessarily relate to health. Right. So their capacity to do physical work, whether it's stay up for 50 hours or do whatever the task is that they need to do or do some kind of endurance run. Someone say, man, they are super fit. Their VO2 max is outstanding. Their skeletal muscle for that person is amazing. Their metabolic markers are great. Um, I cannot tell you what is in, you know, I think that that's such a difficult question. I can tell you the general public. I like to see, you know, people focusing on volume for resistance training. I like people to be lifting at least three days a week. Um, if not more, I mean, truthfully in my ideal world, I'd like to see people lifting more like five days a week. Um, and I also want them doing some kind of aerobic capacity activity to improve mitochondria, you know, and to really, kind of allow their body to focus on utilizing free fatty acids as opposed to glycogen. Um, and I, would like to see really healthy muscle. So, but I think that that's a great, a, a really great question. Awesome. Yeah. And good to hear, uh, obviously that fits with our, our CrossFit philosophy here as we're doing lots of, I, I will tell you something that I, that this isn't totally related, but it is related to this concept of, um, sorry, I just took some notes here for you guys. Oops. And I, I really wanted to find it, but it doesn't look like I can. One of the things I really wanted to talk to this community about is, so in my practice, I take care of athletes and I take care of a lot of these operators and just really fit people. One of the things that I almost always see every single one of my seals has sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. Sleep apnea is something that we consider very common for people that are overweight, but actually based on the neck musculature individuals have sleep apnea. And I will tell you, if you care about your performance and you care about your recovery, then you must get tested and know the aura ring is not the same as being able to tell how, um, or if you have sleep apnea, because I have many people and on their aura ring, it, it tells them that they're sleeping great. But if you look at their apneic episodes, they really need to either have a mouth an actual mouthpiece or a CPAP. Mm-hmm. Thank you for bringing that up. Cause I agree. I think it is so, um, eye-opening when you learn a medical school yeah. like that sleep apnea is mostly from obesity, but 
Yes, yeah. it's a lot of very lean people who have sleep apnea. And so almost all, every time I get an athlete, I'm like, we're testing you, sucker. Yeah. And everyone's like, so does your husband wear a seatbelt? I'm like, yeah, the guy looks like he's going diving every night. <laughs> get him in there. The guy looks like he's literally going diving. <laughs> That's great. That's great. But so important, right? If you're thinking about maximizing your recovery, your brain function, heart health. I know again, yet last time you guys had something for aging, you have to get tested for sleep apnea. Women that are going through menopause, hormonal changes, that's the time where they get it. Um, and then, you know, if men are on testosterone therapy and you give them testosterone therapy first, you know, it can uh, worsen sleep apnea. So these are all things that really need to be taken care of. And also, you know, with athletes, they take care of a couple athletes that have cardiovascular issues. I don't, I hate saying issues, but you know, thickening the heart just have been really training for a long time. Um, it's really important that you get tested for sleep apnea and treated because it can have cardiovascular impacts. So true. So true. And I think also, um, especially for guys who are concerned about their testosterone levels, like that is probably one of the most common causes. That's of- all guys care about how I, I did a post about that really offended <laughs> everyone. And it's so funny. Cause you know, if you knew me, you would know that I totally joke about having good hair and testosterone, right? Cause that's all my patients care about. <laughs> and they were like, I'm so offended. That's like saying you should be in the, the kitchen with your barefoot and something. I'm like barefoot and pregnant. Yep. Check. Do that all the time. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay. So sleep is important too. Um, it tested. So let's dive into some of these questions. So the first one yeah. I have is from Diana and she, I believe is talking about supplementing with yes. vegetarian and vegans. Should you also vegans, should you also supplement with leucine? So let's talk about leucine supplementation in and of itself. You should not supplement with leucine alone. The way in which the branched chain amino acids work is they are metabolized it with leucine, isoleucine and valine. And the natural ratio in which they exist is a two to one to one ratio. So by adding one um, amino acid on its own can really push that cycle out of whack. So, you know, nobody should actually supplement with leucine alone. So how do you recommend getting it just in your whole protein sources or whey protein? So if you're a vegan or vegetarian, you must, I, I highly, highly, highly recommend supplementing with a branch chain amino acids with branch chain amino acids. You could just throw in five grams of branch chain amino acids within that five grams of branch chain amino acids. It'll have two and a half grams of leucine done throwing five grams of creatine and you're good to go. You have a great, have some omegas, you know, do whatever you do and off you go. Have your five cups of coffee. Kidding. It depends on, so the, the coffee intake and the child intake. So I think the, the parallel anyway. (laughs) Um, so that's something to think about. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Next one I'm going to take from, I'm not great questions. You guys. Aaron. Yeah. Would she, or he, I'm not sure who this is, would love a little explanation regarding the connection between skeletal muscle and hormones. You know, I think that that's pretty well established, uh, in terms of, um, testosterone being anabolic. I think a little bit less established is estrogen's role in skeletal muscle. There is some data to support that estrogen is important in skeletal muscle metabolism. I will tell you that thyroid hormone is important for glucose transport into skeletal muscle, specifically with the GLUT4 transporter. Um, So basically this is a long-winded way of saying that it is important for hormone status to be optimized. That being said, I can't look at a guy and say, Hey, your testosterone is 1500. You're going to put on X amount of muscle or, Hey, as a woman, your testosterone is 10 and you're going to put on X amount of muscle. So it's not a correlation like that. But, um, you know, there are certain things that we do know as it relates to optimization. 
And I think just to overall, like you said, the takeaway that your, your muscle is an endocrine organ, it's not something that people often think about, but right. there, there are, and this is all new science. This is science that is this really originated out of Pedersen's lab. And I want to say it was in the early, um, 2000. So it's, is, this is newer research. This is new stuff. And I'm actually starting to look at it, um, working on looking at it right now with patients that is, it's very novel. So we'll see. Um, Monica is asking a woman who is about to go into menopause, how much protein should she take? I heard the estrogen depletes at this age. So protein helps with that, but in what way in your view, estrogen and protein work? Hand so for menopause, I, so I I'm a physician, right. And I definitely believe that if a woman is open to hormone replacement, this is the time to do it start, if you wanted to just start with testosterone, this is the time, you know, during menopause is when we do see a lot of decline in hormones, um, increase in cortisol. I also believe that one gram per pound ideal body weight is still solid. Um, you know, I do find that women, if you calorie control, you can do your carbohydrates, but I find women through menopause do well with time-restricted feeding, not only time-restricted feeding, but also limiting carbohydrates during this time. Uh, and again, this is my personal opinion. You know, I've been seeing, I've seen thousands of patients. So this is what I have seen work best for them. And then of course, getting tested for sleep apnea. And I also do believe, and I am not resistant to starting uh, medications. And I don't mean crazy medications. I mean, things like low-dose naltrexone or, or things like amlexinox or a compound in metformin. And people say, oh, well, metformin, you know, works against mTOR all of this stuff. And I am telling you, I can appreciate that. And maybe that that's what uh, the data says, but I will tell you in my clinic, I do not see that at all. And especially utilized in a low dose in combination therapy works fantastic for body composition. So awesome. And, and I think great time again, we're, we're giving, you know, talking about your experience, this is obviously different for each person. You're going to give a slightly different recommendation based on the individual. And we're not giving yeah. medical advice here. We're just talking about, yeah. our, um, you know, your general. Experience. And this is what I see in practice. So I see patients, I have a license to prescribe, you know, so these are the things that I see in my clinical practice. And I know that, you know, it's one thing if you look at the data and you don't actually treat patients, but it's another, if you look at the data and you go, okay, I can appreciate this, this is what the data says. Um, you know, let's see actually if it translates over. Um, and what I've found is, you know, there's certain things that were, you know, the body is very bio-individual. Each person is different and yeah. these studies are done in large groups of people who all have yeah. slightly different responses. Um, so Matt Lines is asking, which I think maybe there, maybe we just need a little more clarification on the cancer. genome testing. Okay. So let's talk about that. Um, so this is, this is, seems like a few different questions. So is there a recommended genome testing company to use to watch out for cancers? I use this in my clinic and I use the grail. So it's called grail. Um, and it is, it tests for all different kinds of cancers, early detection. And also I'm using it in my operators, guys with exposures, guys that have been to Afghanistan. It's really important. Uh, so that's that, a very good question. Yeah. And that is a very sort of new novel it is. Uh, concept of early detection of cancer. And obviously there's also separate, if you're looking at GMOME in terms of risk factors, yeah. that's another, a whole nother animal. Um, Derek is asking, do you believe there's benefit to muscle growth intermittent fasting? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's a strategy to grow muscle. I think it's a strategy to modify calorie control. Like it's a way in which you can control your calories, but it's not an ideal strategy 
to build muscle, but could, I guess you do it if you're eating in an eight to nine hour window, then yes, I wouldn't necessarily call that fasting. So I guess your question is intermittent fasting. And I would probably have to know a little bit more detail, but if you're training hard and you're eating well, I think that there's a good, and you have a great program. I think there is a good chance of success. You can put on muscle again. This thing depends. You know, I love Andy Galpin. He always says, ah, it depends. And he's totally right because it does depend. What is the person's training you know, status? So um, I like that question. And how do you see it fitting in? So obviously if you're, you look at certain athletes who are really, their sport is dependent on having a lot of muscle, look at like yeah. football players or something, and they're eating constantly around right. the clock to be able to maintain that versus somebody who's, you know, doing CrossFit recreationally and thinking about health and longevity. How do you balance like the building? Great. Muscle Great. I love this question. Okay. It's probably my favorite question so far. Actually, not. I really love the cancer questions. So I'm <laughs> amped up. Um, so people talk about health and longevity, and then they talk about health and longevity as it relates to protein. And there's this big push right now to cut back on dietary protein because it improves longevity. Okay. These are very nebulous terms. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the difference between living from 95 to 98 crippled and bedridden? Or are we talking about, you know, longevity could be six months. So you're going to decrease dietary protein so that you could live six months longer, totally weak with a broken hip. So when I think about longevity, I actually think about increased protein intake, not decreased protein intake. And I'm actually a geriatrician by training. So my fellowship was a combined fellowship in obesity, medicine, nutritional science. That's where I did my clinical research. And then I did uh, clinical work. So I ran an obesity clinic and then I, you know, part of my um, medical fellowship was in geriatrics. You do not want to end up like that. I am, and that is one of the reasons I feel so passionate about talking about this because I've actually taken care of them. I have been at their end of life, you know, where you're like the death fairy and you're seeing 30 patients a day that are not going to make it. It is brutal. And then you're working in the nursing home and then you go back and you hear social media people like, don't eat protein. No, it's bad for you. It's, it's going to affect longevity. You are like, are you kidding me? Nobody who's actually working in the field, in the arena, who's done the sacrifice in the arena is saying that. It's just not true. So let's, again, just like the cancer conversation, we must understand when we talk about the nebulous term, it's like throwing glitter in the air, longevity. Are we talking about six months? Are we talking about six years? Are we talking about the quality of life? So what do I think about a person in terms of kind of um, lifting heavy? I think, you know, I think there's a lot of problems with football. I know that that was probably just some... Uh, sport that you gave then, you know, cause there's head injuries, there's all kinds of things, very taxing on the body. And then the general public. And I would say the big kind of determinant there would be that calories in calories out exercise factor. I don't know if that answered your question. Cause I did go off on a little bit tangent, but. Oh, no, I loved it. And I think it's a really important distinction to make too, about the difference between living longer versus what is the functionality and the quality of that. Yeah. And how much longer are we talking about? It's so nonsense when I say, oh, you know, don't decrease your protein for longevity. Oh, really? I have never seen someone who's in, a, in geriatrics that would say that like ever. I have not either. Right. <laughs> like ever. I mean, like it's, it's just yeah. so. And then the question is when you're talking about it increases longevity, that's nebulous. What, is, what does that even mean? How long are we talking? 
So. Um, all right. Next question. David says, are there enough studies available now, which identify CrossFit style or functional fitness methods, providing long-term muscular benefits and aging and maintaining muscular functionality later in life into the 70s or 80s? Let's see. So are there enough studies available now? Um, I think that we know that there are the more muscle mass an individual has, the lower morbidity and mortality, the lower their chance of dying is, the greater their survivability across all areas of life. And, and that we do know. This is a good one that I think you can give a quick answer to. Um, Federico, do you think the female population is eating less protein than they should overall? So according to the NHANES data set, which is the largest data set that we have, it's um, a nutritional database. It is believed that women are consuming roughly 60 or maybe 70 grams of protein a day. It's way too low. Um, let's see, which where should we go next? There's a question about coffee. We can touch on this quickly. Um, speaking of coffee, I heard recently the American Heart Association said it's safe to consume up to 400 milligrams of caffeine per day. What are your thoughts? I would go with, again, it depends on this one. Yeah. I mean, my husband, I yell at him all the time. He's the guy's like at 800. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but he's, you know, he could have a cup of coffee and go to sleep. So I think it depends. I think, um, you know, I think, are you a fast metabolizer? Are you a slow metabolizer? Those kinds of things. I agree. I think there's a lot of factors there when you're drinking it, how it's affecting your sleep, all those things. This is a good question. How much protein do you recommend for a a woman who is pregnant? So the current recommendation is you're going to laugh is a hundred grams. So that is the most recent recommendation, obviously, because I was just pregnant twice. Um, but I still recommend one gram per pound, ideal body weight, even while you're pregnant. And, you know, you have to understand, um, if you are getting one gram per pound ideal body weight and you're taking that through pregnancy, that's likely enough. I will also say it is very, if you are like me, it was very difficult for me to get protein down while I was pregnant. I was extremely sick for, I had hyperemesis gravidum for my first, for my first uh, pregnancy. So I wasn't able to do it. So really you do what you can. I think pregnancy is one of those things where you just kind of really do what you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, let's see. Adrian asked, do protein intake recommendations vary among people with different ethnicities? I'm not sure about that. Great question. Um, so no, but I, I think that that's a brilliant question. When you And they don't actually vary for sex either. So a male and a female protein requirement is not necessarily different. It's based on body weight, right? And I think that that's an important thing to consider because it is, you know, and arguably a man is going to need more protein because a man's going to be heavier. That's a really good question. Yeah, that was great. Um, super interesting. Um, let's see, this is one. Um, what are the pros and cons of taking BCAAs and or EAAs? Um, you know, I don't really see any cons. I mean, the one thing, the one negative in terms of taking a branch chain amino acid, um, you know, you don't want to have continual stimulation of mTOR. So that, you know, if you're taking branch chain amino acids between meals, it's probably not ideal. You want to take it with meals. So, you know, I, I really can't think of any negative though. Okay. Um, is that managed in primary care? Is genome testing managed in primary care? So you t- <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I'm very far removed. The truth is yeah. I'm very far removed from primary care. So 
Yeah, I would say it is um, not definitely not a standard of care. I think certainly it's used in a, in a conventional setting. It's used for certain situations um, is what I've seen. But obviously um, we're trying to change that with CrossFit precision care and looking a little bit more, being a little bit more proactive about that. Um, hmm, this is... This is a good question, Carlos. How many, in how many months could I increase my muscles being disciplined? How long does it take to build muscle? So that is a really good question. I was talking to Don about this today and, you know, we were talking about, you know, and Alan Argon has some really good articles on this. So if you're totally untrained, could you put on 24 pounds of muscle in a year? Maybe that sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. So I think this all depends on training status. I think it all depends on, um, if, you know, the more well-trained you are, the less muscle you can put on. So I know that that's not a great answer, but I mean, could you put on a pound to two pounds a month? Maybe it's possible. Mm -hmm. why, do, why don't you give it a shot and we'll, <laughs> we'll find out. I mean, but you know, you have to write. So then, so then there's other things that, right. So obesity can blunt the anabolic response. Age can blunt the anabolic response. There are things, you know, low levels of inflammation make things harder. It's not, again, I, I think in science, we talk very black and white terms. The processes are not black and white. And I think educators like myself do the best job that we can to really streamline, to make things accessible um, for people. So you guys can utilize it in, in your daily life, you know? Absolutely. Um, Eric asks a good question. This is a, a concept. I'm 53 year old male CrossFitter weighing 175 pounds. If I eat a gram Protein per pound body weight is roughly 22 ounces of lean chicken per day or 1500 calories of a 2000 calorie diet. Does that crowd out other important nutrients like fruits and vegetables? So maybe you can answer that, but also just how do you structure the rest of the diet around that protein? So protein? I think about, um, carbohydrates in a meal threshold basis. So basically anything above 40 to 50, 50 grams, 40 to 50 grams per meal of carbohydrates creates a secondary insulin response. And I think that we know that elevated levels of insulin can have negative impacts on the body. So for me personally, when I'm designing a diet for someone, you know, who is not exercising in that moment. So this is taking out extra earned calories. So we're not talking about crossfitting cal calories earned while crossfitting. We are talking about on day-to-day -day basis, 40 to 50 grams, determining, depending on what their carbohydrate intake is. I tend to be a lower carbohydrate person, but it doesn't mean that you can't figure out, you know, based on your calories, what, what that looks like for you and just really mitigating carbohydrates above 50 grams, unless they were training, I wouldn't add that in, in terms of fat. That's just by choosing high nutrient dense foods that can fit in wherever your calories fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, Greg asks, what's a good source to learn what one's ideal body weight is? Great question. Nobody knows. This <laughs> is another major problem with why we are constantly focused on obesity. Everyone is like, okay, well, if you're 30% body fat, that's a problem. But what about how much percent muscle should someone be to be optimized? We have no idea. This is a major, major error. We have no, we know everything that's going to kill you, but we don't know what the stuff is going to make you great. We don't know. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Greg, I will get back to you as soon as I know I'm going to work on the data. I really am. I'm trying to put all this together for you. <laughs> um, oh my God, Sherry Wells. I love Sherry. 
Go for it. Go for your question. Okay. What are your thoughts on using protein powder? If this is the sherry that I think is the sherry, which I'm sure it is. <laughs> what are your thoughts on using protein powder to get some more grams of protein a day? And does it matter what kind? Um, so it has to have a complete amino acid profile. Whey protein is the best. Whey protein is a food matrix. It has alpha lactalbumin in it. It is lactoferrin. It has things that are immuno. Um, what's the word? Like helpful, helps the immune system. Beef protein as a protein source is low in branch chain amino acids, uh, unless you get something that is, it has added pea protein, um, is also low in the branch chain amino acids because it is a plant, but you can find combined pea rice blends. I will say it is very unusual for individuals to eat, um, isolated pea protein. We don't know what those long-term effects are because it's just not, it's a newer food. Um, and same, I guess, yeah, I guess that that's what I would say about that. So what about protein intake and gout? So gout is genetic determinant, right? Um, I haven't, you know, it is a purine issue. Um, as long as that is well-maintained, you know, uh, there's not an issue with protein and gout. I, I haven't really seen that. Um, there's a question up here from Alexis. What about creatine supplementation during breastfeeding? There's probably not studies on that. And also I would say why I would just eat some red meat. The less you do during breastfeeding, the better. Um, it's just better. Minimal supplementation during breastfeeding. Fish oil is important. Vitamin D is important. Staying on your prenatal is important. Um, awesome. Yeah. Um, should older adults take creatine? If so, how much? Yeah. So one of the things that I always recommend five grams a day for an older individual, whey protein, creatine, vitamin D, ubiquinol is helpful. Um, not necessary. Um, some form of MCT oil is really good for the brain. I love that. Yeah. Um, Anderson's question, in your opinion, is it more important to build new muscle or make your current muscles stronger or are you oh, just doing both? Right. Why? You know, I was thinking about that today as I was um, thinking about what I really wanted to talk to you guys about. And I was thinking, you know, somebody's going to ask me what's more important, diet or exercise. And there's always this question of having to choose. And I always wonder, well, why? What, what is this? Why should we have to choose? Mm -hmm. That being said, and then I was thinking subsequently, look at some of the Olympians who eat whatever they want and train really hard. So I think if an individual is, and even CrossFit, CrossFit don't, you know, now there's this push for CrossFit health, but I think in the beginning, you know, I would see guys go out and pound pizza, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you are eating healthier. Yeah. I think it all depends on the implementation and we see it from all sides. So CrossFit's foundation of our, of our pyramid is nutrition, but it's not always implemented that way in real life. But mm -hmm. I would say for sure, I've been, um, surprised by how big of an impact, I mean, I know nutrition is a foundation, but yeah. seeing you really can't out train a bad diet. Like if you have a terrible diet, I've seen people who are doing CrossFit right. or working out a lot, but maybe already have prediabetes or things like that because their right. diet isn't optimized. All right. You can't, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to, there's always a price to pay, right? There is always a price to pay for something. Um, let's see. Kelly Clark asks, are there any books you recommend about this subject or any related? I'm working on mine. <laughs> I'm working. Awesome. So as soon as we have that, um, I will get that guys to you. I will get it to you guys. 
Um, kidney function and protein intake. Maria asks, is there an unsafe yeah. among someone um, testing high in creatinine? Is it accurate to follow a lower protein diet? So all of you guys as CrossFitters are probably going to have a higher creatinine. The creatinine and muscle mass, it's going to be higher. I think what you would ask your doctor to do would be get a statin C and get a, a corrected um, GFR, and that will likely be normal. Um, there's been a few recent meta-analysis, which is taking all really high quality data. And I think Stu Phillips did one about protein intake and um, kidney function and actually protein intake improves kidney function. And again, with healthy kidneys, there's no reason why there should be a problem. Are you guys hearing the meltdown in the back? There you go. <laughs> we're, we're five minutes left. We made it pretty far without a meltdown. Um, but have you made it far without the door flying <laughs> open and a naked child running in. I love it. Um, Javier asks, what about bone broth protein powder in our yes. eggs? Great. Great. Bone broth is not a complete protein. Collagen in and of itself is not a complete protein. Um, it is not effective for muscle building is completely devoid of brown chain amino acids and very low in tryptophan. Um, so please don't use that to build muscle. That being said, it's high in glycine. And so it can help improve, um, or reduce methionine. There's some kind of, um, some evidence emerging about that bone broth. Let's see where else is. It's really good that I have found for gut health and skin, but please, you can count it towards overall calories. Do not count that towards protein. And there was another part of that, right? Uh, egg protein. I would just say eat the whole egg, but yes, egg protein is, is great. Egg white protein is great. I think it's a great point. I think you brought it up for people who maybe, um, can't do whey or dairy. What other protein powders? So, um, like a, there's a paleo pro there's, um, so basically paleo pro, I think has, um, beef and, um, egg whites and all kinds of things but it's an animal-based protein. And then my friend, Mark Bell also has his steak and shake. Um, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, I would say you could take collagen, you know, I love first forms collagen. You could put in five grams of amino acids or an essential amino acid scoop. And then now you're looking at a complete protein. So there's ways to use what you have. Um, Ulrich is asking a question. Uh, he's 59. He's been doing CrossFit for eight years. He's now more fit than he was when he was in his Amazing. 20s. Awesome. I keep getting more fit and stronger. Do you have any thoughts on what I should do to exceed and increase my levels of fitness in my sixties and even seventies and beyond? I love it. Um, so this question is a fitness question. I, you know, obviously you've got to train with the best. And I would also think doing more novel type of approaches of figuring out ways to utilize your muscle. If, for example, if you were to get injured or if you were to, I don't know, need to change the load, could you use a, a stim suit? Could you use blood flow restriction? I would even start thinking about ways to augment that, you know, like in your seventies, um, let's see what else. And then hormone status is important. Again, I'm very pro hormones. Although my dad is in his seventies and he has better testosterone than some of my guys in their thirties. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And Auric, I would say you're doing it right. Like, I think this is all an experiment for us too, to watch as people who've now been doing CrossFit for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, what we don't really know, like how much can you continue to, to improve, improve your fitness before you hit a plateau and then try to slow that decline in life as we talk about in the level one. So, you know, it sounds like you're on the right track and it, I think it's an experiment for all of us to try to see, um, what this looks like over the course of a lifetime. 
Um, all right, we have two minutes left. Um, I think from Diana, I think we've covered most supplements, but haven't touched on VMAs yet. What is your opinion about this? Um, VMA? VMA. VMA. Which I think I've seen this before and now I'm going to look it up. Oh, zinc, magnesium. um, So that is like, what is zinc, magnesium, something else? I think that if your diet is rich in protein, I think that if you're taking all the other stuff, I mean, could you take it in and would it be harmful? No. Could you, you know, I hear some people anecdotally say they sleep amazing on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And I don't have too much. I mean, I have experience with some, with those individually, but not, I never actually recommend it in my clinic. It's not one of the things I recommend. Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm against it. It's just, uh, you know, I haven't used it much. All right. Last question from Dennis. How far should protein intake be spaced out? How much protein can great, great use question. This is a great what a great question. So what we know from the data is that it's interesting. So this stimulation of mTOR, which we talked about mTOR, um, is a very metabolically dynamic, expensive product, uh, process, not mTOR in of itself, but muscle protein synthesis is, Uh, A lot of the studies were done earlier meals and what they believe is that it takes four or five hours to actually reset the whole process to then stimulate it again. So, um, you know, and this is from some of Don Lehman's earlier work. And if you were to ask him, he would say you would want to space it four to five hours apart. Awesome. So some great takeaways from today. We can maybe recap your two big takeaways, but I know one was about getting enough protein, trying to shoot yeah. for at least 30 grams per meal. Now we know spacing those four to five hours. And if you're older, you should shoot for more, you know? And yeah, I mean, there's some things like if you train, it lowers the threshold, but uh, you know, for a basic understanding, 30 to 50 grams per meal is, would be ideal. The younger you, you are, the less you need to kind of hit that threshold, but you know, as you get older, it's more important. Awesome. And muscle is the most important organ. Oh, muscle is the organ of longevity, people. (laughs) Muscle is the organ of longevity. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. We look forward to following your work and learning more about biokines and all the other um, things that you are writing about. And um, so thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Wonderful. And for those of you who want to tune in next month, our webinar guest next month is going to be Dr. George Slavich, who is a researcher at the UCLA Stress Lab. And he's going to be talking about stress and its impact on health. And that will be on January 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern. So I hope to see you guys there. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.